Welcome to Radar Contact, the air traffic management podcast by Fox ATM. Welcome to one more episode of Radar Contact. My guest today is Bill Lang, who is Vice President Business Development and ATM at Adacel, a company providing ATM systems and simulators. And today we will talk a lot about ATM systems, oceanic control and simulation. But first of all, Bill, welcome to Radar Contact. Uh, can you please introduce yourself rapidly to the audience? Yes, certainly. Thank you, Vincent, very much for the opportunity to be with you today. My name is Bill Lang. I'm Vice President of Business Development for Air Traffic Management for Cell, and I've been with the company for over 20 years with a focus on our operational air traffic management systems. Nice. That's that's quite a long time already. And actually, com the, the company, Edacel, just celebrated its 35th anniversary. Uh, can you give us a brief history of the company and the, the best successes so far and the most important milestone you have behind you? Sure, I'd be glad to. The company, you're quite correct. We, we're just celebrating our 35th anniversary this year. The company was founded in 1987, uh, actually by three engineers who had worked for the Civil Aviation uh, Authority of Australia, the precursor to uh, Air Services Australia. They were all engineers. And people sometimes ask where our name comes from. And it comes from the fact that of those three individuals, one was a specialist in the ADA software language, one was a specialist in the C language, and the other was an electronics engineer. So combining ADA, C, EL, they came up with the company name. In the late 80s through late 90s, the company had a close association with Thompson CSF, which was later Talus in Australia. Thompson CSF actually owned 30% of the company. And Adacel worked with Thompson CSF on, on the TATS program, which was then the major program for ATM modernization in Australia, and also worked on some of the earliest uh, developments for Datalink that were eventually used to support fans, ADSC and CPDLC. In 1997, after 10 years of existence, the, uh, the company bought out the TALUS ownership and, and went public on the Australian Stock Exchange. And we are still a publicly traded company on that exchange. So that was a pivotal year for the company. And in the following year in, in 98, Adacel acquired the air traffic management technology from CAE in Montreal, Canada. And at the same time, acquired air traffic simulation technology from another Montreal company and set up operations in Montreal as its North American base. Those operations in Montreal grew quickly as the company sought to build the ATC simulation business and prepare for some major opportunities in the U.S., both on the simulation side and on operational air traffic management. A good example of that was in um, 1999, the company teamed with Lockheed Martin, which is now Latos, to pursue a major automation program in the U.S., for the FAA, which is called the Advanced Technologies and Oceanic Procedures Program, which was to, to modernize air traffic management in all of the U.S. controlled oceanic airspace, which is uh, international airspace delegated to the U.S. by ICAO. And it's actually about 24 million square miles, which is the largest volume of oceanic airspace in the world. So Adacel brought to the program the CAE-developed software 
And together with Latos, then Lockheed Martin was awarded the contract in 2001. And we've been working with them ever since supporting that program. So that, that was a real milestone for us. It's been a characteristic of our business that we've had some very long-standing uh, relationships. And about the same time, we also won in, in 2002, a major simulation program for the United States Air Force, which was to see uh, one of our Maxim Tower simulators at every U.S. Air Force base, both in the continental U.S. and at bases overseas. And we, we went on also to win a program for the FAA to put tower simulators at more than three dozen major airports around the United States. These kinds of longstanding relationships have been, been a feature of our business and they've been a milestone of our business. And apart from the United States Air Force and the FAA, organizations like NAP Portugal, Fiji Airports, Avignon Norway, DSNA France have all been ATASEL customers for a long time, for more than 10 years. And we likewise have had long relationships with many European ANSPs, with Air Services Australia and with the Royal Australian Air Force. Apart from these, these milestones, we continue to support these programs, uh, these users around the world. And I think that's been a characteristic of our business that we've had longstanding customers around the world. Wow, that's, that's a lot of history in, in a nutshell. Thank you very much for that. And one thing I'd like to ask you is, uh, how was the phase of getting out of Australia? Because you started in one place, which is to, to the rest of the world quite remote. And you expanded to go really intercontinental and you managed to keep that and, and keep that growth. And what were the challenges you had during that, that move from national to international? So you're quite right. Obviously, when the company was set up, the focus was on business in Australia for the CA, the then CAA and for, for defense customers. And, and in making the acquisitions of technology that the company did in 1998, you know, we took, on, we took on air traffic management technology where there were some existing users and we took on simulation and training technology where there were some existing users in different parts of the world. We had to set up an entity in Canada and, and to find people with the skill set that could uh, support those technologies. So that, that was initially a challenge that was, that was met across all of those domains. And going out to the previous users or the users of those, those technologies and saying, here we are, we have the right people and the right skill set to support you. We went out and, and took on those existing customers of the technology, but then we had to, to go out and look for new customers, of course, as you do. With, with, any, with any business. You know, I talked a moment ago about U.S. programs. That, that was uh, very important initiatives on our part, programs like ATOP, like the United States Air Force and FAA Tower simulation programs and so on. We developed business in the United States. We developed business in Europe and elsewhere around the world. We just had a focus on growing our business in different markets around the world starting from a base of existing customers and building from there. And would you say with that portfolio that ATC business is the same all over the globe or do you really feel strong differences, culturally speaking, or maybe in terms of regulation and reglementation in different parts of the world? Well, there, there definitely are uh, very pronounced different, uh, differences between major, major markets in the world. 
I would look at the world, I won't say in blocks, that's not quite right, the right way to put it, but you have the United States, which is the, the largest aviation market in the world. From an air traffic point of view, I think the United States represents over this period of time, close to half of, half of the world's air traffic, half the world's expenditures on air traffic technology, and a very large, the biggest aviation market in the world. The agencies that control traffic there, for example, the FAA, uh, you have one civil organization that has uh, responsibilities, air traffic responsibilities for the entire, entire country. And then you have, you have Europe, which, which is also a very large, very large marketplace. And perhaps what I was saying before about 50% is not quite right for the FAA, perhaps more like a third, but Europe itself is approaching that level of, of the world's traffic and, and of expenditures and air traffic management. But you have a completely different market in the sense that you have over two dozen sovereign nations that are largely, for the most part, members of, of Euro control, but are still independent sovereign nations who are managing their own airspace, who are procuring their own systems, albeit with a goal towards you know, initiatives like Single European Sky, where you have common objectives and where you have common standards like Euro control standards, which the countries adhere to. That's a market of its own. So the United States, Europe, and, and then you have the rest of the world, which has its own characteristics in different, different continents and different levels of development. Obviously, Asia Pacific has been an area of tremendous growth and perhaps was representing about a quarter of the world's traffic and has been the center of a lot of, lot of major developments. But there you have, for example, Singapore that has a very important role in the Asia Pacific region with a lot of traffic who are procuring major systems. And then nearby, you will have a smaller developing country where traffic is much lower and less complex, where the economic resources are not, not as well developed or available for our traffic technology. So within, for example, the Asia Pacific region, which is an enormous region, you can have tremendous diversity in terms of the size and capabilities and resources of their navigation service providers. And then you have China, which is its own market itself. Tremendous growth in aviation, tremendous growth in airports, tremendous investment in infrastructure, but very much a, a national market driven by its own priorities. So that's Asia Pacific. Uh, you look at uh, Africa, and you have a very large continent, of course, and, and more than 50, 50 countries, varying levels of development and, and economic resources and ability to, to invest in air traffic modernization. So, so it is a diverse world. There are many areas of, of commonality, but it is a diverse world with different marketplaces. One of the things that strikes me is that unlike some other companies, you tackle all of the world. So I have a lot of respect uh, for that. And, and you go to the market with one system, the Aurora ATM system and the simulator associated to it, Maxim. Is it really the same product everywhere with minor adaptation? And how do you manage to serve the diversity of customer with, let's say, almost the same product everywhere? 
so there is Aurora, which is an operational air traffic management system. And there is Maxim, which is a simulation and training system. And they can be two distinct things pursuing two different parts of the marketplace, right? Or you, you can have, let me elaborate a little, little more on that. We have sold Maxim systems all around the world to give ANSPs, the training organizations of ANSPs, tools for doing, for example, ab initio training, where you take new trainees and you put them in a tower environment and, and teach them how to, how to function as tower controllers. And there are opportunities for those kinds of controlling, sort of controller training systems all around the world. So we've taken Maxim all around the world for opportunities like that. For Aurora, Aurora was originally developed as a flight data processing system in oceanic environments. That is distinct from, say, continental air traffic management, because in oceanic environments until recently, there was no surveillance of any kind, and controllers handled traffic through very manual processes doing procedural control. So our, the basis of our ATM system is very comprehensive flight data processing system that eliminates a lot of the manual tasks that controllers did and use the four-dimensional profile of the aircraft as the means for providing automation in, in separation of aircraft. So these are quite distinct things. We were on the operational side initially focused very much on oceanic control. But over the years, we've expanded the capabilities of Aurora to integrate all available surveillance types and to provide for modern, efficient tools for controllers in an approach environment and in the tower environment, for example, with very well-designed electronic flight strips. So the kinds of places that we have pursued have really broadened on the, on the side of Aurora from being an oceanic-only system to one that is an integrated system doing oceanic procedural control, doing en-route surveillance control, doing approach and tower control. Uh, and that's broadened our market. And we've taken the Maxim pro, uh, product and integrated it with Aurora to be the integral training system so that Aurora users can train on a, an exact copy of the operational system across all of the traffic domains, not just oceanic, but doing approach control, doing typical radar control in a terminal environment, doing uh, tower control. And we can add 3D visuals to the training system so that you have aerodrome controller training. So the market for that kind of system is worldwide, just as is the market for Maxim alone in training in training controllers. And yeah, that's really interesting to see how you come from Oceanic and go to the other types of uh, air traffic control, because quite often OEMs do the other way around. They start with sometimes center or sometimes tower, and some tend to consider Oceanic as like a goodie on top. But in your case, you you completely went the other way around and. That's a very interesting approach. Well, it, it's really what distinguishes us from other air traffic, other manufacturers' uh, systems. If you look at the history of, of air traffic control, the introduction of radar, you know, was a tremendous advance 
in ATC in the 50s and 60s and so on. So all of the, the major suppliers were radar manufacturers. And, and so they developed their, their ATC systems based around the radar. Radar, of course, is a line of sight system with a range of perhaps 250 nautical miles. So in the oceanic domain, it was not of use. You know, once the aircraft went out over the coastline, 250 nautical miles, there was no radar coverage. So there was, there was effectively no way of controlling it other than a flight plan and paper strips and an HF radio and very large separation between aircraft. Well, as traffic grew in the 70s and 80s, and the, the amount of transoceanic traffic was growing tremendously, the, the air navigation service providers were really struggling to provide better service to, to uh, airspace users. And this was as the capabilities of the aircraft improved tremendously, and you had aircraft capable of flying not only across the Atlantic, but all the way across the Pacific from the West Coast of the U.S. to Australia. And the 747-400 was introduced in the late 80s. So these aircraft had very good navigational capabilities and long range, but they were stuck flying fixed routes uh, and, and separated by distances of up to 120 nautical miles in some cases. So there was a real impetus there to, to how do you improve air traffic management uh, in oceanic airspaces? And the way you do that, and given the progress in computer and automation technology, the way you do that is that you, you don't have surveillance, so you have to use the aircraft profile. It is really the concept of a four-dimensional profile of a system based on the trajectory of the aircraft that becomes the only way that you can, you can improve airspace efficiency in, in an oceanic area. If controllers have to manually calculate crossing points and manually determine whether there are just going to be conflicts in aircraft, they cannot handle higher levels of traffic. So you have to have the automation to do that. You have to be able to take four-dimensional aircraft pro profiles. So you have a profile for the aircraft, which is based on the the flight plan and the aircraft characteristics, but also takes into account the current meteorological conditions, the upper airspace winds, for example. So we use gridded binary meteorological model and aircraft performance to generate a very accurate four-dimensional trajectory for every flight in the system. And the system uses that trajectory to do all the calculations that controllers previously had to, to do manually. So the automation is doing the calculations that controllers had to do. And the automation is comparing every active four-dimensional profile of every aircraft in the system to determine whether it is meeting the separation standards that are in effect for that aircraft. You can apply different separation standards based on the equipment to the aircraft, whether an aircraft is, say, RNP-10 or RNP-4 capable, means that you can apply different separation standards or RVSM equipped. So the automation knows the equipment to the aircraft based on what was filed in the flight plan, and it's automatically able to apply the lowest separation standard, which is permitted based on the airspace and the aircraft equipage. So this capability depends on a system where you have a very accurate four-dimensional profile. You can't do that based on the idea that 
you're looking at a screen and seeing a radar return. I mean, the whole idea here is providing a conflict-free trajectory was, uh, was one of the guiding principles of the system. That profile is updated every time there's any kind of position report, whether it's a pilot position report, whether it's a radar position report. And, and as the years went on and Datalink became introduced, ADSC and now ADSB. So we have at the heart of our system the, the notion of the aircraft profile and the automation tools that allow the system to detect in advance any potential loss of separation between aircraft. And so by doing that, you're able to reduce separation standards in, air, in, in oceanic airspace. So the capacity of the airspace is tremendously increased. You can accommodate more aircraft and you can accommodate the preference of the user to fly their own user preferred route which is really what airspace users want. They wanna be able to use the full capabilities of the aircraft to operate the aircraft in the manner that it suits their, their business needs. I use the term business, uh, not just in a com commercial sense, but however they wanna operate aircraft to suit their needs. And that's really the goal here. So that's what makes Aurora very different from call them traditional radar-based systems is all of the flight data processing capability that that's needed to support those operations. I guess something that changed the game a bit in the last maybe 10 to two, five years is the introduction of ADSC per, per satellite first and now the full ADSB coverage, where you can get one position report every every 30 seconds, even on oceanic airspace. Is it something that is already fully integrated in, in Aurora? Yes, it is. ADSC has been integrated in Aurora since the, the mid-1990s. The first organization to use FANS-1 ADSC and CPDLC operationally was Airways New Zealand, who is a user of the Aurora technology. So that data link capability is there already and is very well integrated with the automation capabilities that I talked about a moment ago. For example, a data link equipped aircraft can will request, for example, request a higher flight level while it is in, in the progress of a flight. And that, that is sent as a standard CPDLC message to the controller. The controller receives the message, opens the message. The Aurora automation automatically identifies whether the uh, requested flight level is uh, conflict-free and automatically composes the uplink message to the aircraft. The controller has to simply review that message and send the send button. And that goes up through the communications network to the aircraft. It's reviewed by the pilot and then auto-loaded into the aircraft. And the aircraft flies flies to the higher flight level. That is, that is something that is has been part of Aurora for a long time. Now, when you talk about space-based ADSB, of course, that's a new service that is that has come into play just in the past couple of years. But it, it, is, it is just another source of, of surveillance data. So, so yes, we, we already integrate ADSB. Space-based ADSB is the same asterisk format as, as the latest ground-based uh, ADSB. So we already integrate that into the system. So space-based ADSB reports are received into the system and are, are applied to the aircraft profile. So we're getting much more frequent updates to the aircraft profile because space-based ADSB provides, you know, almost like a radar reports with almost the same frequency and timing 
as radars. So that so that's already in the system and it's already updating the flight profile. Well done on integrating that so so quickly. And I guess this is something that helped you with with two contracts you won or got awarded recently. And here I'm thinking of two very nice places in the world. One is in Seychelles, where you won the, the modernization with Seychelles Aviation Authority. And you also won a DSNA contract in, in some overseas territories. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about these two new contracts? Yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to. So the Seychelles controls an area of oceanic airspace in the Indian Ocean off the east coast of Africa. Within that airspace, they have their main international airport and they have a secondary smaller airport at, at an island, which is uh, not so far away. We had interacted with the Seychelles Civil Aviation Authority early on. We were awarded the contract last year following an international tender, which took place 2019-2020. We had demonstrated to Seychelles the Aurora capabilities that we had already developed and that we were extending the, the evolution of with, with other ANSPs. For example, in, for Fiji in the South Pacific, They've been using Aurora to manage their oceanic traffic since 2010, but we had by then a, a major upgrade project from them to support five nautical mile en route separation within their ADSB coverage area to provide their controllers with tools for approach control and to modernize, help modernize their towers, the two towers they have, two airports, with modern tower automation. So we were able to, to show the Seychelles Civil Aviation Authority the unique capabilities of Aurora in the oceanic airspace, together with the new tools that we had, we're developing for approach and tower control and integrated with our Maxim simulator. So I, th I think what they saw there opened their eyes as to, as to what's really possible in managing that kind of airspace, oceanic approach and tower in a in a surveillance environment because the because they are implementing space-based ADSB as well as ground-based ADSB. So I, I think that really, really influenced their thinking about what was possible. And I think that's the reason why we were we were chosen after an international tender and we were ultimately successful. Now you mentioned the French overseas territories. We have been working with DSNA France for, for over 10 years now. And, and they, they have a program to modernize the air traffic management uh, systems in their overseas territories. And that's uh, French Guyana in South America, Guadeloupe, Martinique in the Caribbean, uh, New Caledonia in the South Pacific, and Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean. They had a, a process by which they essentially pre-selected three potential suppliers to bid on individual tenders for these uh, up to five locations. And we were successful for the first tender, which was for French Guiana. And we delivered a system there that was commissioned in 2016. And, and from French Guiana, they control oceanic airspace across the uh, South Atlantic uh, in the direction of Africa, actually uh, bordering on the uh, airspace controlled from Dakar in uh, Senegal. And they have their international airport <clears throat> at Cayenne. And so we were successful in delivering a system there. And so the second phase of the program was for Martinique and Guadeloupe. Martinique and Guadeloupe are in the Eastern Caribbean. And unlike our previous customers, they do not have oceanic airspace. 
they provide approach and tower control and, and uh, have a TMA up to uh, flight level 245. And so I think we were successful there. Uh, we were awarded a contract in 2018, again, after a competition, because of the experience that the, the customer had had with us on in French Guiana with the system for Cayenne. And so in 2018, we were awarded a program for Guadeloupe and uh, Martinique. Guadeloupe has now passed its uh, operational readiness testing and is, is going into service later this year. And for Martinique, we, which is our recent press release that really, really is acknowledging the, the second phase of the program, which is for Martinique, which we'd already started. But this was the official ordering of the system software. So we're seeing the same system as Guadeloupe going into Martinique. That led actually last year to, to another new customer in the Caribbean in St. Lucia, which is just next to Martinique, of course, and operationally is very close, works very close with Martinique. And so they, uh, the St. Lucia Air and Seaports Authority ordered uh, Aurora systems from us for their two airports. And they will be um, essentially the same systems as are in Guadeloupe and uh, will be delivered in Martinique. That sounds really nice. Is there some internal fighting in the company to know who will get the trips to Seychelles, Martinique, Guadeloupe, St. Lucia? Who all sounds to me like close to paradise places. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know that there's any actual infighting, but... Um, Many of our staff have been to, to some of these locations. People have sometimes asked me, why is it, why is it that Adacel has uh, contracts in these types of places? And, uh, you know, the answer has been uh, largely because they're surrounded by water. And uh, that's where uh, our initial Oceanic uh, customers were. But then I, then I remind people that, uh, you know, not, not so many years ago, we... Uh, We delivered a system in the beautiful country of Norway up north in Buda, which is an oceanic air traffic control facility. I said there are, there are no palm trees there, but it's uh, certainly a beautiful and rugged place. Now, looking at the other end of the spectrum and also looking in the future, one of the latest acquisitions that Adacel has done is the virtual ATC tower system from Cybernetica. And here we are talking about tower, about remote slash virtual towers. So is, is that the next direction and the next step you will take to grow the company in different segments? Yes, it is. Uh, it, it's a major step for us to expand our product uh, portfolio with virtual towers, with the acquisition that we, uh, we announced earlier this year from, uh, from Cybernetica. And I can, tell, I can tell you today that if you go on our website now, you will see that we have uh, launched the product there under the name of... Uh, Rival, uh, which in fact is, uh, it's a name that links the remote, the V with virtual and the AL, R-E-V-A-L uh, with Adacel. And it, it, it happens also to be the uh, historic name of Tallinn in Estonia, which is where the product has been developed. So it is a definitely a new initiative for Adacel with you know, absolutely um, the intention of growing the company in that direction. And it's a very good fit with our existing uh, businesses, with our existing products of Aurora, which is uh, ATM automation and has a particularly good automation system for uh, smaller type airports, together with Maxim and the training capabilities that that will 
provide. So, so now we are, uh, we have established Adacel in Estonia, and uh, we have a team now that have developed the product who are now uh, Adacel employees and part of our team and part of our latest uh, location. And, and our main goal right now is, uh, you know, incorporating these new staff and our customer who is Estonian Air Navigation Services. So we're, we're really at the start here. And uh, we're, we're going to be uh, augmenting that team to, to meet the current, current requirements that we have on the program in Estonia and our future plans. So, you know, that's going to be accessing uh, services and support that we have in, in Montreal and in Orlando in our U.S. facility. So we're currently working um, to meet our commitments with, uh, with Estonia Air Navigation Services, EANs. And uh, we plan to deliver a site acceptance uh, event in Tartu later this year in September. But we're going to be, uh, you know, the goal of ENs is to digitize uh, all Estonian regional airports by 2025. And, and that's going to include, you know, we're going to expand from a single aerodrome operation to include airports in Cardla and Parnu. So, so we're moving towards a multi multi-tower system for those programs. We're also, we'll be moving forward with, you know, the overall product development, uh, multi-tower product development uh, into a new version over the next years. We see a lot of benefits in acquiring remote virtual tower as a product. We see a very good fit with our existing customers and we'll be focusing on specific opportunities with them and with new new customers in different locations around the world. That's really nice to see that the growth continues both internally and with, with external acquisitions. And now to, to close and to look further in the future, I'd like to ask you our standard signature question. How do you see the evolution in ATM in the next five years, but also to open the door to to more possibilities in the next 50 years? So I think for the next five years, we're going to see the continuation of trends that were much in evidence prior to the pandemic. But I think, you know, everything is, is tempered by the pandemic and, and the ongoing recovery in aviation. We are seeing global air traffic now approaching, you know, a return to 2000. And 19 levels, you know, for the first time since the pandemic uh, was declared, that varies somewhat around the world. And I think Asia is still somewhat, uh, somewhat behind on that. You know, ANSPs, as we all know, uh, the whole of aviation suffered a, a shock, was unparalleled. And for ANSPs who saw a tremendous drop off in traffic, they saw a tremendous drop off in revenue too, which meant that you know, capital programs have been, you know, deferred. But as traffic is resuming, we're seeing these come back into play. Improving airspace efficiency and capacity while reducing costs and strengthening systems to be more resilient while always, you know, maintaining or improving safety are, you know, those are those are general themes that I think are still very much relevant. And I think they will continue to define ATM evolution in, in the near term. You know, pre-pandemic, unmanned airspace vehicles, UTMs were very much part of, of the dialogue. So, you know, incorporating new airspace users is uh, something that was going on before. Even, you know, even things like, uh, well, the commercial space launches, for example, and, and high altitude balloons 
are things that were taking place and continue continue to take place. So th- those things are they're they're only going to continue. Talking about remote towers and virtualization, well, those were well underway before the pandemic, and this is going to this is going to only continue. I think the you know the, the pressing need for cost savings that uh, remote towers can provide is only more important, and these these things have to take place in a very resilient way, as we've seen from the, the shocks of the, of the pandemic. So I think in the next five years, we're going to see a continuation of, of these things and, and they'll become more prevalent. So the next 50 years, that's a, that's a challenging question. I can never find a crystal ball when I need one. You know, global events are, are very hard to predict. The pandemic is a, is a great example. We also see in, you know, the invasion in Ukraine and actions by major powers that that maybe we thought belonged in the last century, but are still with us today, and how that can impact impact uh, air traffic, impact fuel prices, and so on. Those things are those are quite unpredictable. Air navigation services have always though flown out of the or come out of the fact that airspace is the responsibility of sovereign states, and you know, and often that is, has meant uh, fragmentation and, and un, uneven levels of service around the world. So that continues uh, to be a challenge, but I think um, you know some of the the things that we've seen going on today, you know, drones and and uh, urban air mobility, the return perhaps of supersonic jets, uh, more commercial spacecraft activity. All of these things are going to continue and to become more sophisticated, and you know, there's going to be a diverse mix of aircraft. That, you know, potentially electrically powered or with alternative fuels that are going to have different characteristics. Some of them very high altitude, some of them very low altitude, some of them manned and unmanned. Um, it just point it it points to a level of continuing complexity and sophistication that uh, you know we have new technologies that can be brought to bear on them. But I think. Uh, you know, more automation and greater autonomy of operations are going to be the order of the day as we progress. Uh, and this has got to take place against the pressing need of, of uh, environmental sustainability. So I, I see more complexity, more automation, more artificial intelligence. But all, all these new technologies are ultimately about, about supporting kinds of trajectories that the airspace users uh, want to have. No doubt it's going to change the way of doing business. And it's certainly going to change the way that uh, controllers do their jobs too. Bill, thank you very much. I would really love to see a supersonic come back again. Indeed, that would be really nice. Thank you for being our guest today, for taking the time. And I'm looking forward to, to see the EDSL and to visit you in, in Madrid at the World ATM Congress. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vincent. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, we look forward to seeing you and your colleagues in Madrid as well. Thanks.
This was Radar Contact. Visit foxatm.com or your favorite podcast platform for more.